Welcome to another episode of the Work Hard, Play Hard podcast. My name is Rob Murgatroyd, and each week on this podcast, I talk to some of the most fascinating people on the planet in all areas of life, from mindset to fitness to spirituality, and of course, business. Look, I believe you deserve success in all the areas of your life, not only business. But before we get into today's show, you may want to join us on our next Work Hard, Play Hard experience. This year, we're going to be going to Mykonos and Marrakesh. In these experiences, I have hand-selected a group of high-performing business people who are seeking more balance, connection, and they want to celebrate their wins as a reward for the hard work that they put in. If you want someone to curate once-in-a-lifetime experiences and force you to play more, rush over to workhardplayhardexperience.com. Fill out an application so we can jump on a discovery call to see if this is a good fit for you. And remember, excuses are over. It's time to live. Some would say that regular exercise needs to be part of a healthy lifestyle. And the, the only problem with that is that as we age, there ends up being a million excuses why you don't continue that regular exercise. Another way we say this, by the way, is in the time it takes you to drive to the health club, you could get your Be Strong session done at home. One of the big things that this does is it burns fat, builds muscles. So muscles get a little bigger in volume and, of course, stronger. But we also uh, reduce body fat significantly. Hey, everyone, and welcome to a special life extension pop-up episode. How do you like that? How do you like that? These episodes are a bit of a test to see if you guys are interested in learning more about life extension and maximizing your health. Look, the average lifespan in the U.S. is around 88-ish years old, depending upon where you live. And new technologies are helping people live much longer lives. And some people believe that we could actually double our lifespan within the next 40 years. So in this series, we're going to explore all sorts of anti-aging and life-extending technologies. Today on the show is Dr. Jim Stray Gunderson. He's the expert that NASA calls on to help the astronauts with physical performance and Mark Wahlberg, that Mark, Marky Mark, as he was once known, calls on on how to optimize his training. And look, we've seen his body. We know he trains and it's insane. You're going to learn how blood flow restriction will create exponential training results in a fraction of the time. And he's got the device to make it easy for you. So please enjoy this conversation with Dr. Jim Stray Gunderson. Dr. Jim Stray Gunderson, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you so much. You know, I am super excited to have you here today. Um, our Work Hard, Play Hard audience are entrepreneurs who are looking for the edge in life, and that edge also includes being as effective as possible in their training. 
So you have a radically different perspective, um, at least as near as I can tell. Um, and I'd love to dig into that today, but I thought what we would do is first talk a little bit about your backgrounds, then we'll move into um, your company, Be Strong, and the products associated with it. And then we're going to talk maybe some surprise questions about fulfillment and how you do different things to be fulfilled in your life. Cool? Yep, absolutely. All right. And by the way, uh, I really appreciate uh, the theme of your program. I graduated from the University of Wisconsin in Madison, where the theme is definitely work hard, play hard all the time. (laughs) Okay. So uh, that's great. Then you go to med school and that's just general. And then you do a, a kind of residency. And my residency was in general surgery and my board certification is in general surgery. But after my residency, I ended up doing two uh, postdoctoral fellowships, one in cardiovascular physiology and another in human nutrition. And then I was asked to join the faculty at UT Southwestern in Dallas. And um, this was kind of at the very beginnings of what would end up being called sports medicine, but mm-hmm. they didn't quite know what to do with a general surgeon. So they put me in the Department of Orthopedics and the Department of Cardiology. So that, that's kind of the exact uh, story. Okay. And then there, it, that was at Baylor, right? Well, uh, University of Texas uh, Southwestern is part of the U- UT system. But I then got asked to uh, set up a human performance center at uh, Baylor Medical Systems or Medical Center, uh, which is also in Dallas. I had uh, one foot at UT Southwestern and another one at uh, Baylor. What was it about human performance that interested you at that time? Yeah, that's that's a great one. Goes back a long ways. Uh, So... I always had an interest in science and an interest in sports. And through most of my education, those two things were separate. But when I finished my residency, I kind of wanted to uh, see if I couldn't uh, create what amounted to a new career. Uh, Instead of taking out gallbladders every day, I wanted to study human performance and health and fitness. And that, that's what prompted me to go and uh, do the postdoctorate fellowships in um, cardiovascular physiology and, and human nutrition. So it was really about taking the two things I was passionate about in my life and being able to make one career out of them. Okay, let's define human performance because everybody sort of uses it a bit differently. How do you define what human performance is? Hmm. There, well, I mean, there's there's some easy ones, and that is in any kind of athletic achievement or whatever, you know, running a 5K race or that sort of thing. But then there's performance in life, and um, that generally runs around uh, – a bunch of do's and eating well and responsibly, exercising regularly, brushing your teeth every day, yeah, and uh, that sort of thing, and and uh, also having your emotional relationships uh, in good order, and as essentially leading a uh, a good life. 
So we're in an interesting place um, in the world where tech is sort of meeting bio. And there's lots of people talking about all kinds of things to help improve your life with life extension, et cetera. What's your thoughts, before we kind of dig into some, some of the work that you do, what's your thoughts on life extension? In other words, you know, the average person's living now to roughly 80 years old or so, depending upon where in the world they're, they're from. Yeah. You know, do you think we're going to see 100 years old, 140 years old, 200 years old? Where do you think we're going with this? I don't know exactly what the number is, but life expectancy will continue to increase. And as we get various devices and figure out a way to uh, have a interface between, uh, let's say, tech and uh, biology, then we'll have things like uh, artificial eyes and senses, various senses and uh, ability to get around and take over for some of the things that wear out over time in this, call it 100 years of biological life, for starters. Uh, but there's, there's another aspect to this that, that I don't think tech really addresses. And that is, I think people need to be useful or, or put it this way, they are happiest when they're useful and, and wanted. And uh, if, to me, you know, even if my physical being is okay, uh, being put into a senior home and, you know, fed three times a day uh, is not much of a life worth living. So, a uh, very important component of this will be to be able to have uh, people continue to interact, to have generations be able to teach one another and interact with one another, all those sorts of things that I think really, you know, in many ways, we put up with various physical inabilities to be able to do those kinds of things. And the people that are happiest are, it's not really about what doesn't work. It's about what their relationships are and uh, how they view their life. Yeah. And some of it, I think, you know, if I could, if I could say this is a little bit of vanity, but some of it is how they look. You know, I was talking to a friend this morning and he said, you know, if I, if I get to 180 years old, I don't want to look 180. <laughs> <You know>? yeah, well, <laughs> I'm not sure what 180 looks like. Um, yeah. So you've worked with many Olympians in various sports to maximize their performance. A good example of that would be your relationship with uh, the famous runner, Alberto Salazar. Maybe you could explain what blood flow restriction training is and maybe talk about how it entered your life. Well, some would say that regular exercise needs to be part of a healthy lifestyle. And the, the only problem with that is that as we age and we get one kind of little injury after another or something gets in the way where our job takes us out of our usual habits and maybe then uh, family and kids come along that eat up your time that you would otherwise spend exercising, There's there ends up being a million excuses why you don't continue that regular exercise. And um, blood flow restriction training ends up eliminating almost all those excuses. So in very short order, 15 to 20 minutes, either daily or three times a week, uh, you can get a very vigorous workout 
that uh, gets all of your systems uh, functioning in in uh, optimal in an optimal way. And it's easy it's easy to do that without having to uh, uh, sustain the injuries and everything else that might be associated with having three hundred pounds over your head. All right. So let's, let's give people who don't, you know, the, a lot of people listening to this are in the gym or, well, a lot of gyms are closed right now, but you get the idea they're running they're you know, they're doing something where they don't have access to a computer to actually look at the product itself. Can you sort of describe its usage? In other words, I, I believe that yeah. there's a, c- a couple of armbands, leg bands. Tell me about that. Yeah. So, um, typically for an individual set, uh, of be strong there are there's a pair of armbands and a pair of leg bands and a little uh, hand pump like on a blood pressure cuff mm-hmm. and you put the bands the bands are uh, the armbands are of a variable length so they can accommodate different size arms but they're basically about two inches wide and it goes above your bicep and below your deltoid and then the leg bands are similarly of different of, of adjustable length to fit different leg size legs, but uh, it's about three inches wide, and it it is placed uh, high up on your thigh, where just about as high as you can get it up on your thigh, and uh, then you pump these things up to uh, some recommended pressures that are just kind of arbitrary numbers. But what they do is is they inflate the bladder, which then puts pressure and contracts uh, onto the extremity. And, and in so doing, we're, what we're really doing is we're limiting the ability of venous blood to get out of the extremity. We're not cutting it off. We're just limiting it. It's kind of putting a resistor in the circuit. And, um, and so what happens is blood backs up into the capillaries and venous in the veins, and then whatever muscles end up exercising end up not getting their blood delivered in a timely fashion. And along with the blood, the oxygen that the blood is carrying uh, is uh, is not adequate to sustain the work that's being done. This ends up creating a uh, metabolic crisis in those muscles, and that is perceived as uh, you know, oh, I don't know a muscle burn or muscle fatigue, something like that. And this uh, fatigue signal uh, stimulates local protein synthesis to uh, improve the conditions that are there. But it also goes up into the brain and uh, rattles around in the brain for a while. It goes to your cortex where you perceive it to be fatigue and effort, but it also goes to the autonomic nervous system and it also goes to the um, uh, thalamus and the hypothalamus, which uh, control the release of hormones from the pituitary gland, including growth hormone. And so now growth hormone or an anabolic hormonal cascade is stimulated, and this goes throughout the body so that any tissues that were working, whether they were above or below the bands, uh, will get the benefit of this anabolic hormone cascade that's going on. And uh, these things amplify whatever local processes are going on. So number one, you don't get you don't don't get the damage associated with standard heavy exercise. 
But number two, you stimulated the body to adapt as rapidly as possible to these new circumstances where they perceive uh, the muscles or the brain perceives that the muscles need to be stronger. They need to have a better blood supply. Um, the bones and tendons that are associated with them also need to improve. So in a way, it's it, we've kind of like biohacked this thing. We're, we're tapping into the normal adaptive systems for very strenuous work. Only thing is, we didn't have to do that work. And uh, we've just created the signal by impeding or restricting the amount of blood that the working tissues are getting. Now, is this used only during uh, activities like running or is it any sports activity? It can, it can be applied to anything literally anything in water out of water indoors outdoors summer winter we have skiers skiing with these things we have swimmers swimming we have rowers rowing soccer players playing soccer or just doing a series of calisthenics in your bedroom first thing in the morning what sort of results are you seeing from people you know who are saying they're listening now and they're saying well sounds like it makes medical sense, but it, it just, you know, it's, it's way out of the box of what I've heard and I've never heard anything like right. this, but right. you know, I'm willing to give it a, I'm willing to give it a shot because I'm getting older. I'm not getting the results. What kind of results do you see when people start adopting this? Well, this is, this has been, there have been numerous studies on this. There's, there's probably like, oh, over 500 art, published scientific articles in the literature now on various aspects of blood flow restriction training. But in general, what we've seen with our stuff in a number of pilot studies that we've carried out is that for 10 sessions of Be Strong, so you could do those in, you know, in two weeks if you, exercise, if you did five sessions a week, or it could be, you know, closer to four weeks if you're doing it uh, three times a week. But for that kind of thing, and, and generally this is 15 to no more than 30 minutes per session, uh, we see improvements in, in strength of 10 to 15%. And we also, one of the big things that this does is it burns fat, builds muscles. So muscles get uh, a little bigger in volume and, of course, stronger, but we also uh, reduce body fat significantly. And so, uh, oh, just one of the studies that we did with some already well-trained Marines, we had a 12% improvement in strength in uh, after 12 sessions. And we also had an 8% uh, decrease in body fat from these things. So very effective and that comes on really quickly with what is a fraction of the time it normally takes that you need to spend in the gym. And yet, another way we say this, by the way, is, is in the time it takes you to drive to the health club, you could get your Be Strong session done at home. Yeah, for sure. Especially if you don't look at Facebook. Yep, I got you. Okay. <laughs> so here's, here's the question I have. So, you know, let's say somebody is used to going out a couple days a week and they run five, six miles. Yep. Do you recommend that for 
15 to 30 minutes of their time running, they do this and then complete the activity? Or do you recommend only 15 to 30 minutes and no more? Well, the real answer is it depends on what their level of fitness is and what, what else they've been doing and everything else. But if, if one of the things to say in general is if you're going running with the Be Strong bands on, you don't have to run as long as you normally do and you don't have to run as fast as you normally do to get the same equivalent and even better training effect. Because uh, particularly with running, it's so dependent on having proper blood flow, and which is, which is what Be Strong ends up uh, restricting. And uh, so that... Uh, essentially the ceiling comes crashing in a lot sooner than it otherwise would. All right, let's talk about that because I want to make sure that uh, people understand it. So when I go to the doc and he puts a blood pressure cuff on me, I don't actually love when he's pumping it up and I'm kind of waiting for him to just take that thing off me. Right. What What's it feel like when you have it on? Is it super uncomfortable yeah. like a blood pressure cuff? So, so uh, this blood pressure cuff as you can attest, it's basically there's some sort of Velcro and nylon wrap that goes around you, and there's a bladder inside that the doc pumps up to get above your systolic blood pressure. That's how you take blood pressure. And that is not what Be Strong or Katsu is. There are products on the market that function like that, but they really don't do it the right way or the safe way. And um, what, what is a critical piece to all these things is that, that with the blood pressure cuff, the outer layer is rigid. And once you set the Velcro uh, and you do a muscle contraction, your muscle shortens and gets fatter and takes up more of the space inside the cylinder. And that, something's got to give there. So either the pressure inside that cylinder of, of your extremity pressure goes up and gets to a point where it occludes the arterial inflow, which is the only way to have complications from this sort of thing. Or you really are making the muscle ischemic by squeezing whatever blood is in there out of there. And uh, uh, it, pro it produces a untoward situation very rapidly, where with both Katsu and Be Strong, and this is kind of the secret of all this, is that our outer band uh, can, can uh, stretch or has elasticity to it to accommodate that uh, increase in size of the cross-sectional area of the cylinder that's contained within the band. And so that, that ends up being a critical difference between Be Strong and other devices out there, which makes it... Uh, both uh, much safer and uh, much more effective. Okay, but what does it feel like when it's on you? Does it feel like you've got, like, is there a way that you could describe it for people, what it would well, feel it, like while they're running? When, when you have it on, you know, when you put a blood pressure cuff on and the guy's got the thing pumped up, it, it doesn't feel very good. But when you have an elastic system, you don't feel that feeling at all. Ah. And so it's, you know, it's very comfortable. It, and, as, you know, if you're not doing exercise, you might not even notice it's there. 
That's what I wanted to hear. Okay. So I ha- I'm so glad we had this little conversation because I had this vision of, you know, two giant blood pressure cuffs and me trying to figure out how the hell am I going to run with this thing on, but it does not. <laughs> it, okay, great. Now that's, a, that's another thing with uh, these other products is, you know, they end up being pretty, pretty thick and end up making it really difficult to run with normal technique with these things rubbing between your legs and kind of getting in the way and you have to change your stride and the same thing with the arms for things like swimming or anything else that our our bands have a very low profile and don't really get you know they don't rub against the other leg or your chest wall or anything else Okay, cool. I don't know if this is a fair analogy or not, but I've been toying with personally doing nasal breathing when I run, just running, you know, breathing through my nose. And it's much harder. My heart rate goes up much higher and I'm having to do much less. Is this the same sort of thing where if people have, you know, a heart rate monitor on and, you know, they're looking at their watch and they're kind of measuring where their, you know, beats per minute is, et cetera. Are they going to start seeing a difference where they're getting winded quicker or their heart rate is going up higher or there's, you know, they have to slow down because they're getting dizzy or anything like that? Well, if, if we take your example to a little bit of an extreme and we cut off, we duct tape your mouth and your nose while you're trying to run, it's not very long before you run out of oxygen and you can't do it anymore. And what's happening there is... You, your whole, the entire body is being deprived of the oxygen it needs to function. So your brain's not getting it, your heart's not getting it, let alone the muscles and everything else that need it. With Be Strong training in our, in our bands, we're restricting that hypoxia or that insufficient oxygen supply only to the working muscles. So the brain and the heart and the liver and the lungs are all happy campers. And so you don't, you don't get into this, you don't get into this situation where there's uh, a lot of distress caused just by the, by the hypoxia. So it's more local. Yep. Got it. Okay. So this strategy is sort of making its way now, uh, into mainstream with celebrities starting to adopt it. Like, uh, uh, Mark Wahlberg, are you two working together on his training or is he just doing this separate from you? No, he's he's very much part of our team. He is okay. Tell me about that. Is he? Is there like? Um, is he like an ambassador for you guys? Is he testing it out? Well, uh, I would put it in in a way. Of course, he's an ambassador just by who he is. But we ended up turning him and his personal trainer onto this, and uh, they loved it and uh, then wanted to get involved. So uh, we thought that was great. And um, so he's, he's literally part of our team. And at this point, um, you know, he'll do Instagram posts or whatever and talk, talk it up. That's amazing. I mean, you could not buy anything like that. So that's, uh, that's incredible. I'd like to switch gears a little bit and um, ask you uh, if you could tell us the story of how you helped uh, Todd uh, Lodwick 40 days before Sochi okay. after a crash that uh, broke his ribs and trashed his uh, rotator cuff. Right. Um, he fell on a, uh, doing a ski jump on uh, January 9th, 2014. 
And he ended up, uh, as you say, uh, he had a, a pretty bad fracture of his humerus, his upper arm bone. And he tore his rotator cuff and he broke a couple ribs and he had a little bit of a head injury. And, you know, he had already been qualified for the Sochi Olympics, which were the next month. And this, this happened in Germany and we flew him home the next day and he saw our shoulder orthopod and the guy said, well, Todd, you know, really we need to fix this and, and go in there and kind of put you back together. But this is going to mean you, you, you can't, you can't go to the Sochi Olympics because, you know, it's going to take a good three months to heal this thing up where you're going to be able to compete at all at the earliest. And, uh, Todd didn't like that answer. And at the same time, I had been, um, starting to develop these various blood flow restriction protocols. And I said, well, you know, uh, we can try our blood flow restriction techniques and if they work really, really well, we can maybe get you to Sochi and, if they don't, then you can go get the operation because the season's over. And Todd said that sounded better than no chance at all. So off we went and we were doing two uh, sessions a day. And uh, the, the key elements to this kind of thing is, number one, if you're going to want to have a fracture or an injury like this heel, you have to mobilize the, uh, the shoulder for a good period of time. So and if you do something like immobilize a shoulder or put a leg cast on or whatever else, your fitness for being able to compete at something goes out the window very quickly as muscles atrophy and you get out of shape and everything else. So our, our approach was to take all the uninjured parts and keep them as fit as possible while Im- First immobilizing and then gently doing uh, blood flow restriction training on the uh, injured parts to try to get them to heal as quickly as possible. And uh, long story short, um, we uh, he ended up uh, uh, doing well enough so that uh, uh, the team took a chance on taking him over to Sochi and as it happened, he ended up being elected flag bearer for the U.S. and carried the flag in both his right and left arm, and it was his left shoulder that was fractured in the opening ceremonies. And then um, a couple days later, he did his first ski jump since he fell and did well. And uh, then eventually, 39 days after the injury, he ended up uh, competing in the uh, team competition for Nordic combined, which amounts to uh, two ski jumps and a five kilometer cross country ski run. And um, he did as well as if he had never been injured. And uh, so we were able to get him back. A lot of the athletes, coaches, and doctors from the other teams who had actually been where he was when he fell and, and injured himself uh, just could not believe that we had gotten this guy back. And uh, so it was an amazing story of how blood flow restriction rehab, in this case, can, number one, maintain levels of fitness 
so that an Olympian can compete and, on the other hand, have injuries heal as quickly as possible. Well, that sounds like a success story. Yeah, and, and never needed an operation. Wow, that's really cool. You've also worked with NASA on their D-1 space shuttle mission and worked directly with the astronauts. Can you yeah. talk a little bit about uh, what you did there to help those guys? My role in that, in, that was, it was actually a life science mission. And uh, my role at that particular time was uh, we were looking at the effects of microgravity or spaceflight on uh, cardiac muscle and skeletal muscle. And, uh, and so my job, if you will, was, you know, normally, normally when you go into space in two weeks of weightlessness, you lose 20% of your muscle mass, 20% of your bone mass, 20% of your heart mass, 20% of your blood volume, 20% of you basically goes away because the body recognizes that it's not necessary up there. But that's a problem when you're coming home and all of a sudden it is necessary. Yeah. So uh, there's there's a whole area of research and work called countermeasures to counter the effects of weightlessness. And we tried some of those things. And, uh, and in that particular mission, the idea was to characterize very well what the changes in muscle uh, strength and volume and cardiac strength and volume uh, are. And um, so basically we supervise strength tests and, uh, and scans looking at muscle size and, and um, that sort of thing. Really cool. All right. So as we, uh, as we move towards um, wrapping up, I'm going to uh, bring you into a, a quick lightning round, some random questions about you personally. Uh -oh. What would your friends say is one of your superpowers? Basically to think. Okay. I'll t uh, that's perfect. What keeps you up at night? I guess the, the <laughs> state of our society or our American experiment. Man, we are definitely in that. Do you collect anything or have you ever collected anything? Uh, <laughs> well, uh, not really at the moment, but uh, as a kid, I would collect stamps and some coins. Um, but one of the things that uh, may amuse the audience is we live on a golf course and uh, where you live on the 13th hole, which is a par three. And our condo is kind of at right angles to the, to the tee. Mm -hmm. And invariably we have our windows broken every year <laughs> by people hitting the ball 90, essentially 90 degrees from where they're supposed to be hitting the ball. Yeah. And there's also uh, a big pond that people have to go over to, uh, uh, get to the green. And that pond is an excellent, uh, golf ball collecting device. And so, um, in an effort to keep people from breaking my windows, I set out on a, uh, collecting all the golf balls in the world. And the way that I did that was that I would then go with my little, uh, scooper and get all the golf balls out of the pond every day. And, um, in the course of about three years of doing this, I amassed over 15,000 golf balls. 
Holy and cannoli. And then, of course, being the kind of nerdy person that I am sometimes, I had to wash them and uh, characterize them. And uh, so I had these spreadsheets with every brand and then model of the brand and the condition of the ball. And, and these were really, you know, these had been abandoned, orphaned golf balls that apparently nobody wanted anymore. And we, we rescued them. And, and then one of my kids ended up, uh, my wife got tired of seeing 15,000 golf balls stacked in egg cartons in the, in, in the store. So yeah, she got one of my sons to, uh, um, put these things on Amazon and he called them stray balls. And, uh, oh. that these balls had strayed into un, undetermined territory and we've rescued them and, and trying to get them back to get them back to their own, to their owners or their players. Oh my God. That is the best answer I've ever heard to that. <laughs> what, what do people never ask you, but you wish they did? Most people I meet and end up having conversations with don't really understand, you know, the, the work I've done in terms of physiology and exercise physiology and sport performance. So I rarely get asked about uh, any of these performance enhancing techniques or anything else that uh, really my career has been about. Yeah, I could see that. I could see that. Um, they want to talk what- about golf balls. Yeah. <laughs> what book have you reread the most? There's, there's a series of spiritual books uh, written by a guy named Carlos Castaneda. And the first one um, is about, it's about these um, Mexican uh, Indians and they're essentially herbal arios or the witch doctor that runs them. And it's, and it's a whole cons- construct about a spiritual world that's uh, really interesting. And uh, it has influenced me and in many ways taught me how to live what uh, they describe as the life of an impeccable warrior, which is everything honorable and, and doing things that uh, end up providing you happiness, uh, both here and in the, uh, afterlife. I love that. That was Wayne Dyer's favorite. I don't know if you know who Wayne Dyer is, but that was his favorite author. He always talked about that. Really? Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. Carlos Castaneda. It's in, it's in most of his books. Yeah. Really fascinating. Well, listen, this has been, um, fantastic. Do you have any final words, suggestions, or an ask for the people that are listening? Uh, I think a good one is work hard, play hard. There you go. That is the name of the show. And thank you so much for taking the time. We're going to link up in the show notes how everybody can get their hands on one of these. And I really do appreciate the work that you're doing. And uh, thanks for taking the time. Yep. More than welcome. Happy to do it. All right. Thanks for listening. If you love this episode and you know someone that needs some help in either stepping up their work hard game or their play hard game, it would mean the world to me if you shared this podcast with them to help me get this movement out there. So if you like what you heard, head on over to iTunes, take 30 seconds and leave me a five-star review and I will be forever grateful. So until the next episode, excuses are over. It's time to live.